0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hot varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. A
2: pronounced tropical fruit um, and stone fruit flavor. It's a flavor bomb. It's going to be released here within the next couple of weeks and so growers can start putting their orders in with propagators.
0: This week on the show, the hotly anticipated release of the USDA Public Hop Breeding Program's first tropical aroma bomb. What it took to finally get here, what the future looks like, And more.
2: Hi, my name is John Henning. I'm with the United States Department of Agriculture Agricultural Research Service. I uh, act as a research geneticist working on hops.
0: I have so many questions for you. I (laughs) want to talk about genetics and all the progress that's been made. I want to talk about some exciting new hop varieties that you're about to release 008 and 074, which rumor has it, are going to be a pretty big deal. I want to talk about the role of the USDA, funding, and so much more. Let's get started with what you've already done, then work up to the big news. Give us the rundown on the nine varieties you've already released, then talk about the 11 germplasm lines and the impact of those.
2: Okay. So, looking at the nine um, cultivar releases... Several of these releases were lines that had been developed before I arrived in 96, in 1996. And I just had the honor of releasing those. The research geneticist who was there before me, uh, Dr. Al Honald had developed a number of these and then kindly handed them off to me. So this would be Saniam and Horizon, uh, Sterling and Teamaker. The ones that we're following after that, so like Mount Rainier, is one of my first original lines that I developed. And and that one, of course, is used extensively by sort of the macro brewers rather than the micro brewers. And uh, then moving on to things like Newport, which was developed for disease resistance primarily and a replacement for Galena. And that one is used actually quite extensively in plant breeding because of its uh, unique disease resistance capabilities. Then moving on to uh, Triple Pearl, which is a triploid line. Um, it's more of a, an aroma hop. And just recently, I released Triumph, which is garnering quite a bit of excitement in the craft brewing industry. And, Um, Not just in the Pacific Northwest, but across the United States because it's a public cultivar. And then moving into my next release, which is going to be the 074, that particular line has a name that the brewers, um, many brewers that are part of the Hop Research Council, have the opportunity to name. And when the uh, announcement will come out that it's once it's released, which I anticipate in the next couple of weeks, actually, the name will be released at that point.
0: Okay, I want to hear a lot more about 074. but first, tell us more about those germplasm lines you've released. Why are they important?
2: So the the germplasm lines. Um, most of those have been released uh, based upon specific traits. So in, in one example, there's a, um, and I'm trying to remember the exact number, but it, it was a line that's released that has uh, mite resistance. And then other lines have been released because of their downy mildew uh, resistance or their powdery mildew resistance. Others have been released for generating high-yielding offspring. Um, some of these are males in fact actually most of them are males and so they're not released as cultivars because we don't grow them obviously but these are germplasm lines that that help the breeding uh, the breeders in the united states to develop new exciting lines that they're working on um, i don't know if, if many people are aware of this but uh, all of the breeding companies in the united states Uh, We're completely dependent upon the USDA ARS in developing germplasm and releasing germplasm and getting lines out to them. And so if you look at the pedigrees of all of the lines that are um, developed here in the United States by the private breeders, you'll find all of those traced back to germplasm that the USDA developed.
0: You do a lot more than just release new hop varieties. What else have you done?
2: Um, So a lot of my more recent work has been focused on sequencing the hop genome and uh, identifying genes that are found in the hop genome. Um, And the the sequencing component of it has been sort of a step-by-step process uh, as new technology has come along. So uh, using early sequencing technology, we were able to put together initial hop genomes for a variety called T-Maker. Um, several years later, new technology came along that allowed us to uh, develop um, much better assemblies of the hop uh, hop chromosomes, and um, and then third sort of third generation technology comes along, which has allowed us to develop uh, sequences for the whole chromosome. And so now we ha- have uh, our newest genome which we hope to have published here um, uh, december january or february uh, just depending upon how long it'll take to get through reviews but that genome um, has all of the genes and all of the markers that are present in hop as well as uh, gene models and other things like that and the the beauty of all of that is that That particular, the genome itself, allows us to look for genes and markers that are linked to specific traits that we as breeders can then use as selection tools. So, instead of having to grow out a hop and look to see what its yield is in the future, we'll be able to uh, look for markers that are linked to high yield And do our selection early on rather than grow things out in a long process uh, that takes up to 15 years now. Um, So that's part of it. And then the other part of the genetics is we're looking at um, plant response in hop to drought and heat tolerance or just heat. Of course, after this past year and several years before that, we had that really bad... uh, heat episode in the pacific northwest and so these are sort of information that will allow breeders to utilize it to select for drought resistant or heat tolerant lines and then finally um, one of the newest projects on my radar is to actually look at the genetic control for thiols Um, you know these are some of the compounds that we uh, not me i'm not a craft brewer but craft brewers are very interested in. In terms of their their components to flavoring, and so um, hope to be working with some of the brewers to identify genes and markers that will allow us to select for these compounds um, in an earlier stage.
0: Cool. As you just alluded, talking about different generations of technology, the the field of genomics has seen incredible advancement during your career. For Mm -hmm. example, I just listened to an episode of Radiolab, which called out the exponential decrease in cost of sequencing the human genome since the year 2000, when President Clinton announced the completion of the Human Genome Project. Talk about the advancements you've seen and how they've impacted the USDA's public hop breeding program.
2: Oh, it's, yeah, it has been incredible. Uh, You know, when I first started doing sequencing work and assembly back, and I think it was 2012, uh, when I was looking for funding to do this, um, the cost to do the sequencing and analysis ran to the hundred thousands, um, which was still relatively cheap in comparison to what the human, the first human genome was.
0: I think the first one, first human one, was either it was either one billion or ten billion. I forget yeah, what it was. it, yeah. it was
2: definitely <laughs> way up there. Yeah, <clears throat> and so you know, uh, fast forward to 2012, and we're looking at 100,000 um, as opposed to to that 10 billion or 10 whatever billion. Um, and then even as of late, I'm uh, finishing up sequencing and assembling of a hop genome. Um, that was about. $5,000, maybe $10,000 to do that. So it's, it's incredibly much cheaper. And then to actually look for all these markers, that, the cost of doing that has also dropped dramatically, where um, probably the greatest cost is uh, actually extracting the DNA from the plant. Um, everything else is, is pretty cheap. In comparison to that, so um, it's it's bringing the likelihood of using uh, molecular markers for plant breeding into the realm of uh, being economically viable, rather than what it used to be, where it was kind of like, yeah, that'd be a, a nice thing to do, but it costs quite a bit, and I can just grow this out in the field for half that price. Yeah. So we're not we're at that point now where the the cost analysis is pretty close to even.
0: John, you're the lead scientist at the USDA's HOP research program. What's the scope of that program? How many scientists are involved? What do the program's resources look like today in 2021?
2: There is funding for four HOP scientists. Um, There's myself, and Dave Gent, who is the plant phys- uh, excuse me, plant pathologist. And then Kayla Altendorf was recently hired as another plant geneticist, and she's located up in Prosser, Washington. And we will be soon um, interviewing for a hop physiologist that's looking at uh, drought and water stress. So there's four hop scientists. Um, the federal funding that comes in for the program, um, gosh, I should know this number, but I, I'm going to say it's around 2.5 million. Um,
0: Seems I, like a pretty small uh, number of people and dollars to be behind, you know, something as important as the future of hops for the for America.
2: <laughs> it, it it does sound small. Um, the nice thing, though, is that the the hop industry and the brewing industry uh, actually. Well, let me take a step back. Um, many, many years ago, back in I, I call it the dark years in you know 2008 through about 2012, um, there was insufficient funds to pay for two hop scientists in the hop cris. With the top project so dave gent and myself were funded um there were some sort of creative financing that had to be done and and dave gent and myself also had to go out and get grants on a very regular basis to be able to make up the difference to to do the research that we needed to do and so um the hop world and the brewing world got together and went to Congress and I think 2018 or 2017 uh, was able to, to get and gain new funds that were just a godsend to the program. And so now we're what we call the USDA calls fully funded with each scientist having uh, a good amount of money for their salary, for their technician salary, and for operating funds. Um, and so, we have that funding. In addition to that, though, uh, David Gent and myself and, and now Kayla, and I'm assuming the newest whoever we hire, we also go out actively and obtain research funds to do um, additional studies that aren't necessarily part of the USDA uh, hop research plan that's put into place Um, a lot of our focus for the usda plan is upon uh, stress resistances for disease or um, abiotic stresses but there's there's studies that go beyond that that we're all trying to pursue and uh, for example one of them is uh, looking at flavor profiles and looking at genes there Um, and so i've banded together with several oregon state university faculty members and we recently uh received a grant um i'm not supposed to talk about it yet because it was just recently awarded and hasn't been officially announced yet but um we'll we will be looking at uh terpenes that are found in hop as well as hemp because we have hemp scientists on this grant So, all of us are actively going out and seeking, getting funds, and and I should say pretty successfully so.
0: Four years ago, the Brewers Association made a big announcement that they would provide funding to public hop breeding. I think it's one of the most important initiatives the BA has ever taken up. How impactful has that been? Is more still needed? And maybe comment on the tides of change you've experienced during your career in regards to funding, the number of breeding programs, and private versus public efforts.
2: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the uh, the BA grant was designed to provide funding for um, a postdoctoral plant breeder uh, up at uh, Prosser, Washington. And those funds were also meant to to upgrade the facilities and and sort of make it into a state-of-the-art hop breeding uh, facility up there in Washington. Of course, Washington is the largest producer of hops in the United States. And so it follows that uh, one would hope that the public program that's located up there would also have, you know, top-of-the-line equipment and and, uh, resources to um develop pop lines at uh an extensively or an increased rate and uh develop better lines than um has been produced in the past so that with Kayla just arriving last year um a lot of this is just now getting the equipment building the buildings that are needing renovating those that are already present. So, uh, there's a lot of groundwork that's going on now, but there's also a postdoc that was hired. Um, Oh, I, I think late last year, maybe earlier this year. And so he's just getting his foot on the ground. Um, and just understanding hops and there's a, there's a learning curve with understanding the genetics and breeding of hops. So, uh, I expect great things from that program in the near future, and I think uh, everyone else should too.
0: I was really surprised. I saw in that one of the press releases from the BA, they said something to the effect of that over the previous 40 years, um, the, f- the funding had basically been cut down to like 10% of what it was previously. Oh, yeah. Um, meanwhile, the, the value of the crop was you know, sub- substantially higher than it was in those pre- previous 40 years. I thought that was a really interesting... You know, Mm -hmm. way of looking at it.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's why I call it dark years.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) Do you think the USDA and or the BA should also raise the bar when it comes to creating awareness of public varieties? I ask because I look around at the marketing machines behind the proprietary varieties and that noise just completely dwarfs anything related to the public varieties you've worked so hard to release. I hate to say it, but I've been brewing commercially for 20 years now, and I either hadn't heard of or had never tried most of the varieties you've released thus far. That doesn't mean they're bad varieties. There's just not somebody in my ear and in my inbox day in and day out telling me that I need to try a variety like Triumph or what I can expect from it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, you have you have hit the crux. It's It's the... Um, bottleneck in terms of the whole public program. Uh, there's just not a marketing agency out there that's out there, like you said, in the brewer's ears day in and day out. Um, I, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm rather jealous of that ability with the private, um, you know, the proprietary hop companies because they can do that. There's no Money or time for me to do that. There's no money for a marketing agent. And typically, USGA does not do that. Um, recently, the Hop Research Council hired scientific directors, uh, Brian and, and Judy Thote. And Brian and Judy Thote have been trying to go around to the different brewers and try and promote the public lines and make them aware of that because i you know you're correct there's there's just so much noise about the private company breeding program and the new lines that they're producing and um yeah it just seems like they're coming up with a new one every other year but they're promoting everything so yeah yeah, it's it's definitely a quandary um Coming up Uh, Tropical fruit and uh, stone fruit that come out and very much differentiates it from uh, a number of the popular lines right now
0: I'm John Bryce and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas there's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors the next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies be sure to thank them for their generous support
1: get to know Proximity Malt Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. Master Brewers podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739.
0: And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets by Zoom December 2nd. District Northern California hosts its fall meeting December 7th at Lagunitas Brewing Company in Petaluma. District St. Paul Minneapolis meets at Liney's Lodge in Chippewa Falls December 8th. And the annual District Ontario Technical Conference will be January 26th to the 28th just outside of Toronto. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall, February 24th. Check out the full calendar of events at
1: mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers. United we brew.
0: the show. What's different about what you do versus what folks at the private breeding companies are doing?
2: So as a national program, um, my focus is not on developing hops for a specific region. And so the proprietary hop varieties um, are all designed to produce um, great in the state of washington they don't necessarily always produce very well outside of the state of washington and they don't necessarily do well from a standpoint of disease resistance outside the state of washington as well Washington doesn't really have an issue with downy mildew. And so most of the proprietary lines are developed without any uh, screening for downy mildew resistance. The United States Department of Ag uh, hop breeding program is designed to look at both powdery mildew and downy mildew and focus on releasing lines that have. Uh, at least some resistance to both diseases, but in addition to that, they yield well in multiple states. And so, when I'm growing out a line, I'm actually testing it in states from the uh, the Northeast all the way to the Midwest, to the Pacific Northwest, and sometimes California, um, Colorado, things like that. So it's a it's a broader view and because of having to uh, look for that disease resistance and look for its production in multiple states it takes a lot longer to develop a variety Um, i feel a little bit more comfortable about the potential of a new variety doing well in other parts of the united states Um, particularly let's say 074 which has been tested all the way across the United States, in multiple states, and does fantastic in all of them. And it has good levels of resistance to the diseases and insects, whereas I don't think you can necessarily say that about a lot of the proprietary varieties.
0: Right. Do you feel pressure from the private breeding companies, or do they help you as much as you help them?
2: Uh, I think we help each other quite a bit. I don't feel massive pressure um i i think most of them um i think deep down they're appreciative of the program they, they understand that their programs started from the usda uh i know the breeders were all you know were we all enjoy each other's company and get along great, so it's not better really there's any,
0: probably not that many of you, so yeah it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so
2: we we all get a great get along great, and there's no issues there it's I, if I'm going to say anything, it's going to be the marketing co- you know branches of the companies yeah. that that don't necessarily h- like the public program um, because they look at it as a competition um, I don't look at it as a competition I'm here to help everyone and that includes the breeding companies so you know anything i release they can use in their breeding program so um it's it's their benefit to continue having public lines
0: john in your interview with stan you said that people remember who released a variety what varieties will you be known for
2: (laughs) uh i think in the in the long run probably mount Rainier, triumph um and 074 um i have additional lines that are coming that i i think are going to be uh, as good as 074 in triumph um maybe meeting a different sort of portion of the market but having the characteristics of disease resistance and high yield in a wide range of environments but in addition, you know, I'm, the, the hope is in the next couple of years, I can start looking at uh, drought and heat tolerance in lines. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if I could just say if I were going to retire next year, which I'm not going to, um, I would say 074, Triumph, and Mount Rainier.
0: How, how long has a, uh, a variety like 074 been in the pipeline?
2: So the cross was made in 2006, and it was. I started putting that out in multiple locations in 2012, um, and so it's been. You know, it's been looked at at a lot of different places since 2012.
0: How would you describe the sensory profile of 074?
2: There's definitely. Um, A pronounced tropical fruit um, and stone fruit flavor that's found obviously citrus as well but it's the real tropic uh, tropical fruit and uh, stone fruit that come out and very much differentiates it from uh, a number of the popular lines right now it's a flavor it's a flavor bomb
0: when can we expect uh, a name and how long will it be before I'm likely to actually get some of 074 uh, into my brewery?
2: I'm going to be releasing the, the name on the public announcement that it's going to be coordinated with uh, different agencies like you know the Washington Hop Commission, Oregon Hop Commission, and Washington, or excuse me, the uh, Hop Growers of America. So we're going to be having a joint announcement um, for this line once it's released. In addition to that, um, we've already been speaking to propagators and I've developed what's called a propagators uh, transfer agreement. And so several propagators actually have this line in their, uh, if you will, system. And so uh, it's going to be released here within the next couple of weeks, and so growers can start putting their orders in with propagators uh, as soon as that release happens. So, I you know, I, I don't know how many acres in the first year are going to get planted. Uh, but but been... this
0: time next year, someone's going to make beer with 074. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. I'm looking forward to it. You didn't mention zero zero eight. Uh, I, I've heard other people talk about that. Uh, what, what's the deal there?
2: So zero zero eight is um, it's an interesting line from the standpoint of growers. Um, it's an extremely early line, um, and, and the reason this is beneficial for a grower is a lot of the uh, proprietary lines and other cultivars that are already out there. They a grower. They all harvest at the same time. And so, depending upon where you are in the Pacific Northwest or wherever, you have four or five varieties that mature within a two-week period, so you have to make choices as to which ones you're going to grow. If a grower has a variety that's much earlier than those, that allows them to put in more acreage. And actually be able to utilize and, and harvest more hops because they don't have to pick and choose and limit themselves by, you know, how many pickers they have. So, the benefit of 008 is that it's very, very early, but it also yields quite a bit for a very early line. Uh, we're talking about 2,000 pounds for uh, an extremely early line in, in multiple states at the same time it's got some wonderful brewing capabilities in that it's uh it's very much like a noble hop
0: i have to imagine that you're breeding for some pretty different traits than when you probably than what you probably focused on when you got started in 1996 mm-hmm. what's important now that wasn't important then and vice versa <laughs>
2: Oh boy. So, is, this is sort of the joke amongst um, some of the old time breeders and myself. Uh, earlier on, there were pretty much three or four brewers that were the ones that were dictating what we bred for. And in many cases, the lines that they wanted were not necessarily the very flavorful ones. In fact, if something was too flavorful, it was thrown out. Um, and, you know, I, I'm looking at, and, and Cascade happened before me, but uh, that's sort of the perfect example where the primary big brewers looked at Cascade and said, yeah, you know, we don't want this. And then craft brewers got a hold of it and realized, hey, this is awesome. So that, that's the biggest difference in that we're, um, you know, flavor is just a huge component, flavor and aroma. Um, which was not the case before. In addition, when I first started, uh, there was no powdery mildew in the Pacific Northwest. And so the only disease we ever did any selection for was for powdery mildew. Then in 1997-98, powdery mildew hit, and that became one of the new factors that needed to be considered when breeding.
0: It's so what are there opportunities for you to go back to some of those old lines that got thrown out for being too flavorful, you know, 20 years plus ago?
2: Uh, are they
0: just gone I, I, or is there a no. record somewhere where you can say, hey, let's go revisit, you know, this variety because it, it got dinged on flavor, you know, for being yeah, too flavorful? Yeah.
2: Actually, I, I did that um, in 2015 and earlier, uh, 2015, I – sure if you're aware or familiar with the hop quality group oh yeah so i do quite a bit of work with the hop quality group um breeding wise and they actually asked to look at all of these old lines and so we reviewed uh all of them from back then and they did their aroma analysis and some did some brewing and out of that there are two lines that have come out uh that are Are very promising, and we're looking at potentially expanding those uh, in the future as well.
0: There are a lot more hop varieties than when I first started brewing. The proliferation of varieties has added complexity, especially for the grower, but there are a lot of benefits that come with increased diversity. Talk about the new disease pressure that Cascade has faced as of late, and should we expect the same outcome for? citra or whatever eventually takes its place on the acreage pie chart
2: so yeah you know we we now see a, a situation where uh cascade is showing susceptibility to powdery mildew and powdery mildew has had a great run at overcoming resistance um, in what we what called the, the R six as well, so that's what Nugget is, um, if you will, and a large number of the proprietary lines base their resistance on R six in their breeding, and so we saw this this uh, overcoming of resistance in just like five or six years, when so much of the the uh, the land was panted to these R6 style hop varieties. Um, so it, it's sort of a cycle that is going to happen where if one variety becomes the dominant variety, um, we'll see the powdery mildew evolve and overcome that. Um, downy mildew is a different beast altogether. And so, We don't really know enough about the evolution of that one, but it's very possible that that can overcome any sort of resistance as well.
0: You're going to have to forgive the way I asked this question because I'm obviously not a geneticist, but I understand that you could potentially shave a year off all breeding cycles with a marker just for determining male versus female plants. Talk about that.
2: Yeah. So um, Currently, the way we select for sex is that uh we grow the seedlings out in a a low trellis and closely uh, spaced so that you can get a large number of plants in there um depending upon how that's done the cost to do that um may or may not be more than what it costs to extract the DNA and run the markers for uh, males. And I think we're getting near to the point where the cost using molecular markers is justifiable to, uh, to use. So I think that could be in the very near future. I actually did that last year, um, in one of my nurseries to uh, identify just the females using molecular markers, I mean.
0: And that's and that basically takes a year out of the whole cycle, right? Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Hop growing is still very concentrated geographically. Every now and then I get asked, what's the terroir of hops grown here in the mid-Atlantic? And I always respond with increased disease and pest pressure. I guess I have two questions here. Do you, with your genesis hat on, want to see more hops grown outside of the Pacific Northwest? So do you think that would be good for your objectives and or the industry and then also how does the usda currently support growers outside of the pacific northwest
2: yeah i mean I'd, I'd love to see every state in the united states growing hops um to whatever extent that's necessary i think that would be fantastic i i don't necessarily seeing that uh, happening um just because of the the sheer volume of of how much can be produced in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but I, you know, I think there's a certain level that would be fantastic. And uh, the USDA works with a number of different growers around the United States and programs. And so I've sent out um, experimental lines that I'm working on to gosh, and anywhere from uh, uh, Montana to um, nebraska trying to remember all the different states here um vermont new york uh minnesota wisconsin michigan so all of these different states and, and even down to california now too as well uh, they're growing out these experimental lines and then reporting back to me what the yields are, what sort of disease issues they're observing and so on. So we have a fairly decent idea how that hop line is going to produce um, in that state, but it also gives brewers located in that state a first opportunity to try brewing with the, uh, the lines before they're even released. So sort of a win-win situation for everyone to do that.
0: What about uh, proprietary varieties whose patents have expired? So you've got varieties like Simcoe and Amarillo and Palisade, for example.
2: Hmm. Um, you know, I honestly don't look into that too much. So, yeah, I, I don't have an answer to that.
0: I'm just wondering, it seems like, you know, uh, it seems like those you know varieties that are uh, where the patent has expired should be um accessible to growers you know to all growers if that makes sense
2: yeah yeah and and like i said i don't know patenting laws either so uh you yeah, have to I mean, forgive me.
0: No, 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 it's okay. I was just, you know, thinking back to sort of like, you know, it's uh, it's like Tylenol, right? Tylenol had its fair run of exclusivity, but now anybody can produce and sell acetaminophen. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would think the same would be true for like YCR14 and whatnot, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, that, if you're asking for my opinion on it, it um, you know, oh, yeah. I, I, okay, well, I, I think it would be nice if that was the case. Um, I would like to see growers be able to do that, but, um, you know, at the same time, uh, hop variety is not an easy thing to develop, and so there's a lot of marketing issues there that, uh yeah, probably best to leave the scientist out of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. John, I think you said you wanted to recognize some folks behind the scenes here before we sign off.
2: Yeah, yeah. The collaborators that are involved in all of this work, I mean, um, Dr. Hendricks and his, our, our graduate student, Lillian Paget cobb you know, we jointly work on the, the hop genome, and uh, there's a number of growers that I work with. Um, gosh, there's, there's so many that I could name, but um, these have, the public, Program is completely dependent upon these growers, private growers, growing out the lines uh, to see how well they do on their farms. So, you know that's a phenomenal contribution that they give. And then obviously, Hop Research Council and the the state hop commissions. And then uh, I didn't really mention very much about the Hop Quality Group, but they've actually been a very strong supporter of my breeding program. And we have a number of exciting lines that are coming out through that breeding effort as well that that aren't um, as noticeable at this point. But um, because the members of the hop quality group uh, sort of get first looks at them, I think you're going to find some extremely interesting beers that are going to come out from those different members. (laughs)
0: That was John Henning here on the Master Brewers podcast. John tells me he's got at least four other hop bombs moving into what's called the elite stage, where they are grown in two to five acre plots in a couple of states. And that it's safe to say he'll be releasing on average one line per year going forward. For more Q&A with John, check the show notes for a link to his interview with Stan Hieronymus, which was recently published in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. I'll also update the show notes with a link to the press release for 074 as soon as its name is revealed. Of oh. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.